Hi, are you a gifted or twice exceptional adult who feels a bit stuck in your journey? Do you have goals and dreams which you would love to achieve, but you don't know where to start or feel a little bit overwhelmed? Or maybe you have a thousand ideas, 500 projects, and get distracted by your own thoughts and would love some support on focus and accountability? Whatever gets you stuck, I wholeheartedly believe that gifted and twice exceptional specific coaching will help you unleash your power so that you can be your most authentic gifted self. I recently embarked on my journey on becoming a gifted and twice exceptional coach. So if you are interested in working with me one-on-one, please reach out via email at hello at giftedunleashed.com or you can find more information about my coaching offers on the website giftedunleashed.com forward slash coaching. I would love working with you and I would love to get you unstuck. So please reach out and let's get started. And welcome to Unleash Monday, where we talk about the brain, especially the gifted brain, and how does it affect our thinking and experience of the world differently. There are a lot of stereotypes and stigma around giftedness, and I'm here to challenge those. I'm here to raise awareness and to have a conversation around this topic of what does it mean to be a gifted adult. Common experience among gifted folks is that they feel out of place. They don't quite fit in. They are too sensitive, too intense, too emotional, too overexcitable, and too deep thinkers about the world and about themselves. So if you have been called too much of about anything, then this show is for you. My name is Nadia. I'm too loud, too colorful, too bubbly, too bossy, and I love to talk too much. So welcome to my world, and I'm so happy you are here. Hello, and happy Monday. I hope you are doing well, and I'm so honored you are here listening to this podcast. If it's your first time here, welcome. You are exactly at the right place at the right time. Enjoy exploring new concepts and new perspectives. And if you have been listening for a while, thank you for coming back and showing up. It means a lot to know to be able to serve and support you in your journey. Maybe you are listening because you know someone who fits the profile of gifted or twice exceptional, or maybe the someone is you and you are exactly why I'm making this podcast. So enjoy today's conversation. It is a real treat to have Colin Seal on the podcast. I heard Colin speak before and I was inspired by his story and his message for the gifted and twice exceptional community. He is also part of the G Word Partnership and was a speaker at Julie Skolnick's Let's Talk to E conference for twice exceptional adults. I will share my affiliate links for you in the show notes. It's not too late to get access to all the previous Let's Talk to E conferences. So today I have the pleasure to sharing with you the conversation I had with Colin. Like a lot of 2E adults, he is a multi-potentialite. He studied computer science, became a teacher, and then decided to go to law school on the side. Learning to think like lawyers do changed how he sees inequities formed already in the classrooms by denying students to learn the concept of critical thinking. So he created his own teaching framework, which can be incorporated in any classroom, which he calls Think Law. But I don't want to share too much already up front. I would love for you to hear this conversation and Colin's passion for teaching. So enjoy this conversation. Here's Colin Seal. Welcome, Colin. I'm super excited to have you on the show today. I'm excited to be here. I'm actually a little bit starstruck (laughs) when I learned about 
you and your story. I was really interested and I'm super excited to have you on this show today. And as a lot of people working in the gifted and twice exceptional field, you probably have a gifted story. So why don't we start with like who you are and how did you learn about your own neurodivergence? For sure. It's really exciting to be able to share these stories because while I understand that being gifted and having ADHD or any other combination of twice exceptionality is often talked about in these neurodivergent conversations, I think it's important to step back for a second and recognize that every single human being is neurodivergent, right? Like, well, none of us are wired identically, but there are some people that are, you know, on these outlier sort of levels. And I think for me, what really hit me was growing up in the United States, in Brooklyn, New York, in a situation where my life story was one where a lot of kids that I grew up like me typically are not very well served by our systems. So I, I was on free and reduced lunch. I had families that were immigrants. We were, our families all from Barbados and I was the first generation born in the United States. And on top of that, on top of growing up in the struggle in this single parent home, I had a father who was incarcerated for a decade for selling drugs. And on top of all of that, I would say when I was in the first grade and I'm six, seven years old, I'm not going to say that I was like a bad first grader. It's messed up to call first graders bad, but I was gifted at being bad. I went above and beyond. I was like really creative about all the ways I can cause mischief in the classroom. And what really got me was I also had a very bad speech impediment. And for people who are like speech therapists, they can often hear some evidence that I used to struggle with a stutter or some evidence that I used to have really bad lisp and pronunciation issues with certain kinds of words and letter sounds. And in that process of being evaluated, it turned out that I should have been gifted and talented classes since I was in kindergarten. And all of my behavior challenges actually resulted from a lack of being challenged. And the thing that gets me the most about this is that at this point, I began to get bused to a school that was not in my neighborhood school. My neighborhood didn't offer a gifted and talented program. And this school was revolutionary. This school was transformational. But the biggest transformation of all was that I didn't actually change. It just so happened that in this classroom space, me asking questions all the time was no longer disrespectful. In this classroom space, me saying, hey, we shouldn't do it this way. We should do it that way. That was no longer willfully defiant. This is a place where it was actually psychologically safe to be brilliant. And I don't know what my life would have looked like if I never had that psychological safety. So I think I come to this work and I come with this level of passion around this work because, for one, our kids really need psychological safety to demonstrate their brilliance, whether they're identified gifted or not. And I think when I look at that part of my gifted journey where so many people in this space in education were trained and well-developed around gifted education in general that I worked with that were my teachers, but they didn't understand gifted and. They understood gifted but. So gifted but I talked too much in class. Gifted but I never really finished my activities or I was too sloppy or disorganized. Instead of gifted and 
super creative and divergent as a thinker and different as gifted and all these other things that truly could have been no barrier for me blossoming if they actually were able to just realize they needed to nurture and support me instead of just presuming that my struggles were coming from a lack of effort or a lack of will. So that's the other aspect of we've got a lot of selective achievement, a lot of underachievement in gifted education because we don't recognize the way to really support people for the individuals that they are. Yeah. And as you just mentioned, like by chance you got selected for this gifted program and it changed your life. And you said you didn't change, but you know, your surrounding changed, and you finally got the schooling and the support that helped you thrive and be better quote unquote better behave. But as you said, it wasn't it wasn't you that changed, it was the environment that changed. And that probably also got you later on reflecting that not everybody gets the chance and not everybody is as lucky to be identified and given such a support. Right. And I think the order matters too. Being identified gifted at seven and being diagnosed with ADHD at 37, I'm not sure it would have ever happened that I would have been identified with ADHD at seven years old, and somehow I would have gotten this chance to realize I was gifted at 37. I think what would have happened at that point was bars would have been lowered for me. I would have been sort of kind of tracked into a very different kind of academic track, and my possibilities would be much more limited, not because of myself, but because of the adults in the systems deciding to have a much more scarcity-based mindset about what I could do. So I look at that as definitely a blessing and a huge privilege that it went in that order. Hmm. And I guess my listeners here are really on on two ends. Either they have been diagnosed with ADHD or giftedness or both in childhood and then thought, oh, I grew out of it and rediscovered it as an adult. Or they have children now in the situation and usually through them learn about their own ADHD, giftedness, autism as an adult. But you actually mentioned something very interesting. You got identified gifted as a child and then as an adult had an ADHD diagnosis. How did this journey go for you? Like my mom would ask, like, so what does it help you figuring out having ADHD at 37? What what did it change for you? How How did your life improve or what was your struggle? How did you get identified? So let's talk about how that even happened. I know myself, right? I know the structures I had to have in place. And right now I lead this organization, Think Law, where we're doing all this work around critical thinking all around the United States and got two different books out and designed this whole curriculum that uses legal cases and upper grades and fairy tales and nursery rhymes and lower grades because when kids start looking at all these really shady characters and children's stories and going back and forth about how Goldilocks is just a really scandalous individual breaking and entering into people's homes and stealing their porridge and violating their beds. Just a very, very nasty girl. But these are the things that we get our kids to analyze. And all this creativity, all these things kind of went into this program. And at the same time that I'm doing this, I've got two children. I was married at this point as well. And I had already lived through this adulthood of recognizing that um, there's some things I do really, really well. There's some things that are very dreadful to me. I would know the drain and sucking of my energy that would happen from doing certain kinds of clerical tasks and organizational tasks. I sort of saw this cycle of, although law school was a place where I graduated top of my class. And when I was a lawyer, 
certain things about practicing law were amazing to me and really kind of locked me in. But when I did things that were a little bit less interesting, a little bit more kind of like overkill on the administrative aspects of it, I would zone out. I would space out. I would make glaring errors. I would be like, what are you doing? I saw these patterns. I recognized the way they were pouring into my life. I recognized the ways that a lot of those things became issues, even being a parent of young children while being married um, and starting this company. And in like maybe one of my final rounds of couple counseling before getting a divorce, it was brought up. And it hadn't been the first time it was brought up. But like, you know, have I ever considered looking into whether I have ADHD? And I have thought about it and I did think about it. And at this point, I'm doing a lot of training in the gifted and talented circles all around the country. So I'm meeting people who specialize in twice exceptional kids. And they're looking at me like, well, duh, I thought you already had <laughs> ADHD. But I'm sitting in the actual, when I'm getting my evaluation, I remember being in this office and doing these different tests and whatever. And I got to a point where the psychiatrist was like, well, I'm pretty much off the charts. And a lot of my my intellect and my giftedness has kind of got me to a place where I was able to like build a lot of structures around it. But I mean, I was really off the charts and I was in a kind of role where for me, the way he described medication and impact of medication was going to be life-changing, life-changing. And when he talked about medication as life-changing. And I thought about all the different stress and pressure that I had. When I thought about the fact that I'm the CEO of a company where most meetings have to end with like this five minute, like buffer of silence. Cause I'm like, I think I'm forgetting something, but hang on, we just got to wait. Or I would have massive insecurity of spending hours and hours and hours looking at emails just to see if I forgot something. If I started a draft and didn't send it, and all I thought at that point was a massive set of like letdown, letdown from my family, letdown from my former educators, because my label ultimately didn't matter. Why didn't I get the support? That was my issue. Like, why couldn't you just give me the support when you knew that I was struggling with these different things, be it executive functioning or organization? Like, why would you not just give me more support? Why would you let me struggle so mightily? So that's kind of how I felt. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that so many people struggle, right? And giftedness is not just, there's so much prejudice around the topic, especially if you identified as an adult, like, oh, life should be so easy. Why does it matter? Do you think you're better than others now? Or, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the easiness. It's more like the challenges that come with it and the support that people need. And the life changing, it's like, it's not me as a person, as a character that's at fault, but it's really me as, you know, my brain is wired differently. That's why I'm forgetful. That's why I struggle in daily activities and then finally getting the support. And it for me, it was very empowering. And as you said, life changing, just knowing about myself, having vocabulary and being able to explain myself and especially gifted People can probably compensate if they do have a learning difference and if they have ADHD or autism or some other neurodivergence that they can compensate, but it's not, it doesn't level itself out, right? You still struggle, but you, you have this capacity, but it's tiring. So I'm really glad you're sharing this so openly that you say you got the support at 37, but it, it is very 
frustrating at this point. Like, I, okay, I suffered for a lot of time, but I finally got to understand who I am. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about after you went to the gifted program and you were really off the charts also in school. Like you were very good at math, I I, I learned. And then you went into law school. And so you want to talk a little bit about your school path and how you got into law. And then we talk about think law. Yeah. So when I look back at going to school, I was in a school environment where particularly when I was in elementary school and to a large extent in in middle school, up to being 12, 13 years old, I was taught from second grade on by teachers that really understood how to nurture giftedness, how to find and, and nurture passions. And I was part of a opportunity to to take accelerated math. So we were two grade levels ahead of math by the time I went into high school. And I remember you know, being in middle school was like finding my groove. You know, I had an opportunity to be a part of uh, the drama and dance program at my school because it was a performing arts magnet. And uh, we had like musicals every year, we would travel, see Broadway shows all the time. And I remember I was also playing piano, classically trained and playing piano. And it just was like, everything was interesting. My classes were exciting and um, I would still get in certain kinds of trouble. You know, I remember one time, my notebook fell in the English class. I was in eighth grade. My notebook fell, my, my binder. It was right before parent-teacher's night. And I remember I took a midterm in that class and I got a 100. I got a perfect score on this midterm. And I remember my binder looked like a cry for help. I mean, it was half torn, <laughs> papers all over the place, all this scribble, scrabble. It was terrible. And I remember my math, my, my English teacher bringing it to parent-teacher's conferences and telling my mom about it. And I remember being in this conference, I was like, who cares? Who cares? I got a hundred on the midterm. Who cares? Like, well, why are you pressing me over these things? And there were these things that didn't really seem to matter to me that, at that point. But at the same time, I think that's when all these aspects around like study skills and organization and note taking had not really been pressed, had not really been pushed, had not really been necessary. And now I'm going to this high school called the Bronx High School of Science, which is one of the specialized high schools in New York, you got to take a test to get into. And I remember, for one, academically, it was at a very different level of rigor because it wasn't a school for gifted kids. It was a school for high achieving kids who did very well at harder, faster, more. That really wasn't my thing. I could do harder, faster, more if it was interesting. I could do harder, faster, more if you kind of tied it to one of my passions. But just in generally, that wasn't something that I was prepared for. Also, I wasn't prepared for the kind of note taking and executive functioning and kind of management that it took to excel in a high school where you had seven or eight classes a day where every teacher had enormously high expectations and was kicking your butt. But more than anything, while there's a lot of research that talks about the benefits of academic acceleration and the proof that accelerating a kid academically actually has little to no harm to a child, it does actually matter to focus on the social emotional and the social adjustment aspects of being 13 years old in classes with 16 year olds and 17 year olds. And that was something that really wasn't talked about at all. So when I felt intimidated and I went months and months without submitting a homework assignment on, I had a blank notebook and didn't take any notes and couldn't follow along 
and was cutting class and just not going to classes and had a lot of absences stack up. It's just, again, weird. Why not give me support? I was at a school where to get into this school, I had to show a certain level of academic promise. If you see that promise not being fulfilled, why would you just sit in your hands and just watch me fail and just watch me struggle? To this day, it makes no sense to me that you wouldn't have intervened and done something earlier. So that was a tough moment because I had all the potential in the world, but a lot of my struggles are very fixable. How did you pull through that high school? You mentioned in your book, it's it was hard just for the sake of being hard. And if as a gifted person, if you don't understand the why, you're not really motivated. Exactly. So how, how did you pull through? So it's a combination of things. In the Big Unlock a Lawyer book, I get that story about having this global studies teacher who wanted us to watch Gandhi, the movie. And that was back in the day when he used to have the VHS tapes. And I'm like, you're talking about like a two-tape movie, like three and a half hours of Gandhi. Gandhi's a hell of a guy, but I'm not watching this movie. I'm not watching three and a half hours and answering 50 questions about it. And the thing about the questions is they weren't questions that were like really in depth or about our kind of perception. They were questions to make sure we were actually watching the movie. I'm not doing that. Never. I'm not doing that. What happened was I ended up, because I was behind on some credits and whatever, I had to take summer school. And I remember one year summer school couldn't be at the school. I had to be at the school next door to it. And the school next door to it was kind of a, a neighborhood school. Kids from this school used to beat up kids from my school because my school had all the nerds. And I remember going to this school and it was just so interesting because the teacher in my art class, because I was taking art in summer school, heard that I was from Bronx Science and presumed that that meant I must be smart. And I felt like at that point, I had conflated smart with achievement and I felt like I really wasn't smart, but If she wants to act like I'm smart, I'm going to keep up the act. I'm going to keep on pretending. And it, it, it was one of those things where the simple act of being called an achiever changed my mind about my level of achievement. And as a researcher out of Michigan named Dante Dixon, who actually does this work about what happens when young kids in poverty, young kids of color are actually told that they're achievers. And they see that possibility. He compares it to Steph Curry, the basketball player. Well, his dad was in the NBA. And when you get told you have NBA potential, when you see it, when you believe it, then shooting 300 three-pointers a day when you're 13 makes sense to you because you can actually believe that it's going to translate into these options. So when I started like going through this, I kind of felt like, well, kind of works for me in summer school to fake the funk. I guess I'm going to keep on faking it. I'm going to keep on pretending and lying to these people. And at a certain point, I realized, wait a minute, all this fake and the funk and playing this act, this is really what the game was supposed to be to begin with. Nobody ever told me that this was the game, but this is all there is to it. All I need to do is like play this game. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah. And the thing about it is when you actually look at the tools involved in faking it till you make it, it's actually not even fake. Exactly. You're just doing these different tasks. Because what happens and what happens all along, whether we're talking about our lives as adults and in corporate world or nonprofits and whatever, or like, like to be successful, to be an achiever, what are you looking at like on social media, when you look at what it looks like in our classrooms, it's not about actual achievement. It's about the performance of the achievement. And I felt like no one ever talked to me about 
that performance. I know when As You Like It, one of my favorite Shakespearean plays, they talk about you know all the world's a stage. But have we really thought about what that means? That all the world's a stage? If all the world's a stage, why do we teach our kids that like sitting down and putting your head down and doing all this work is like all there is to it? The performance of it matters. The performance isn't done in isolation. It's done with an audience in mind. So how do I make sure that I understand what this audience right here is looking for, what they're going to value, what they're asking for, and customizing what my performance is based off of what the audience wants to see is the game. That was kind of like my hidden education. I wasn't planning on learning that in high school. That wasn't part of the priority in high school, but by the time I got into college, my high school is harder than college. And for a lot of kids that go to very rigorous high schools, I think the college experience is so much lighter. It's so much more choice-driven, interest-driven. You kind of treat it like you have some level of sense. You treat it like you got some level of maturity. So college to me was more of this kind of leadership journey of getting involved in different things. And I talk about that in my second book, Tangible Equity, about how, some of the ups and downs of like leadership and struggles that you face when you're developing as a young adult can definitely start to shape your mind and, and your attitude towards risk-taking. And what I started to realize was part of that performance aspect was that a lot of people performed in the same way. A lot of people had a very kind of common conforming way of showing achievement, of showing success. And it was kind of weird because we're talking about performing, but I'm also talking about conforming. And I remember being student body president at Syracuse University, and a lot of my colleagues were going into law school. And I had wanted to go to law school. I was a computer science major. But then I was like, oh, these people are kind of jerks. I don't really want to be like them. I don't want to go where they go and do what they do. I don't like the way that they perform this. I don't like the way they conform to this performance of being a jerk all the time. So I got pulled into education, started teaching, and thought about getting my master's in public administration. Because in public administration, I'll be able to actually do stuff, not just talking about doing stuff. And long story short, what happens is I go from being a computer science graduate gets accepted early into this master's program in public administration at the Maxwell School at Syracuse, which is the top-ranked program in the country for that. And then I end up going to teach. Like, I defer admission to this program, and I go to teach for two years in Washington, D.C. through Teach for America. And I go back to this master's program, and I'm focusing on the financial management of the state and local government, because at this point, I'm recognizing when I'm teaching kids that have all kinds of issues outside of school. Like I have one girl whose asthma is so bad because her building has asbestos in it. Or I have one kid who's caught up in, you know, the child welfare system and it's always going back and forth. I'm like, all right, we got to fix things outside of this. I end up relocating to Las Vegas, working in the child welfare system there as an analyst and realizing that the only time something changes is when we get sued. And the law to me ends up being this bottom line thing. So I go back into teaching. I go to law school at night. And for the first time ever, I'm experiencing extraordinary amounts of success. Extraordinary amounts of success because law school wasn't about memorizing nonsense and regurgitating crap. It was about thinking on your toes and playing all the angles and seeing different perspectives. And literally, it was the opposite of conforming. 
Because to perform in law school, what is a mandatory curve, you've got to stand out. The way that you argue has got to be different. It's got to be something where the professor will be like, whoa, because they're blading them blind. They're grading these papers without knowing who wrote them. And they're stacking them in order from the best to the worst. And it's hard to get an A in law school. It's even harder to get this coveted award called the Cali Award. When you get this Cali Award, it means you have the number one overall essay response or final exam. So most people go to law school, barely getting any A's, never getting a Cali. I got a lot of A's and I got five different Cali Awards. Right? Just to show you the, the, the benefit of kind of thinking differently. What were those Cali Awards in? Contracts, wills, trust in the states, divorce mediation, property, and constitutional law. Very different types of courses, very different types of things, but I was a very different kind of thinker. And law school was the first time that I really stood out. But then when I got back into working for a law firm, it went right back to the conforming view of things. And the performance stuff was something that could happen at a much higher level. Or if I were to open up my own firm and had my own clients, right? But, but in the big firm structure, when you're doing junior associate kind of work, that's just not, that's not the, the space for it. So um, when I started looking at, yeah, so, so that's really my educational journey of how I got to that point. And I think it ties in nicely into like what I'm doing now. Yes, please tell us. So one of the good things or interesting things about being a former teacher, it's really actually disrespectful, is that the second you leave education, everyone cares about what you have to say about education. It's really weird. But I'm an outsider now, but I'm an insider outsider. I'm at a big firm and being a part of this big firm, being active in the community meant that now I'm on this Nevada STEM coalition about really advancing STEM careers for our kids throughout the state of Nevada. And then I'm on this diversity coalition for the Department of Higher Education and all these other things. And we're talking about the future of work and all these different things and college and career readiness. And one of the things everyone keeps on talking about is critical thinking. Makes sense. Critical thinking is key for college and career readiness. Critical thinking is key for the kind of world where our kids are going into where they've got to be adaptable and flexible and agile. And yet, show me the evidence of critical thinking. Show me where it's happening. And I'm going through these schools and doing these tours of an aviation program or a robotics program that has five kids out of 2,000. Five kids. Oh, oh, we got a mock trial team here. 12 kids. We have a model UN. Eight kids. 80 kids even. Still a fraction of the kids being served at these schools. I got AP programs, advanced placement. I got international baccalaureate. I've got magnet programs. Again, serving a small fraction of these young people. So we say critical thinking is crucial, but we treat it like a luxury good. This doesn't make sense to me. What would it look like if we actually gave all kids access to critical thinking? What would that look like? How about that shift the game? Because I knew that when I was bused to this school in Brooklyn when I was younger to be a part of a gifted program, there were only 12 kids per grade level in this program. My class had 24 kids. There were 12 kids per grade level being bused to this program. So at that really young age, I knew that although brilliance is distributed equally, opportunity is not. And if we wanted to create that opportunity, it had to be building a pathline of critical thinking. So I started Think Law with this idea that there's something about tapping into our kids' sense of justice and fairness. 
or injustice and unfairness that speaks to this thing that makes them want to dig deeper, that makes them want to push a little bit harder. And when I look at this and I start talking about critical thinking, first people were kind of saying, that's not really for them, right? Because critical thinking, that's for like gifted kids or kids in top tier stuff. We just try to get these kids to pass tests. We just try to get these kids to get through school. I'm like, all right, but it's a deeper level. It's not just critical thinking skills. It's not just habits and mindsets. It's also this idea that in a society that focuses so much on being right, at what point do we actually teach our kids explicitly that doing right is more important than being right? Doing right is more important than being right. Imagine what our world would look like today if kids became adults who understood just because I can doesn't mean that I should. Could you even imagine? Have you been to the doctor recently? Yes. Now, there's really two types of doctors and there's nothing in between. There's doctors who get it and doctors who don't get it. Yes. I'm not talking about medicine, right? Because medicine is one of those fields where like, if you're practicing medicine, you have been decided that you understand medicine. It's do you understand people, right? We talk about things, oh, they have a good bedside matter or whatever. Like, can you speak English to people? Can you speak in terms that people can actually understand, that can actually comprehend that are non-doctors? You know, and, and we do this in education in the United States. We love acronyms, this alphabet soup of love. Well, according to the, 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 the IEP and the SSRF, I'm like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And why do we purposely complex these things, uh, make, make these things more complex than, than they need to be? Because we're not understanding people. I just saw a story today that the head of the CDC, the Centers of Disease Control in the United States, is going in for media training. And there's two things about that that really stand out. One, the humility that it sends to make a public announcement that I'm making an effort at being better at communicating to people because she does not have government experience. She had epidemiology training and she is brilliant. But brilliance doesn't matter if we can't communicate brilliance. You know, at the end of the day, Dr. Fauci is someone that has been polarized unnecessarily in the United States. But he's just a guy from Brooklyn. At a time my mother-in-law was talking about COVID like it was just a flu, he sat and talked about it, making very simple analogies and talking like the guy on the corner. Not the guy with all these advanced degrees. And I'm like, that's huge. That's huge. So when we look at critical thinking, this work I'm going to do with Think Law has a lot to do with like working with parents, right? I have a whole website that's called RaisingCriticalThinkers.us. And here we're recognizing that some parents are apprehensive about what kids are learning in school. Why? Because you might be justifiably worried about your kids learning what to think in school if you haven't taught them how to think at home. So we spend a lot of energy on like, how to think. How do we create our kids to think about different perspectives, to analyze positions from different stakeholders and, and really be able to dig in to different things in more detail? So we have this thing even called like informed opinion, informed opinion, where you look at a headline, any headline, right? And the question we ask is like, what do you need to know? What question would you ask to be able to have a more informed opinion for this thing, whatever it is. Like, what would you ask to have a more informed opinion about this? So I'm looking at CNN right now. I see a, a news story that says, partying passengers stuck in Mexico <laughs> after airlines declined to fly them home. 
What would I need to know to have a more informed opinion about what this headline is all about? Or even this idea of after a series of messaging missteps, CDC's Walensky seeks out media training. Okay, what do I need to know about this? Because what we're doing is recognizing that there's an intellectual humility that plays a huge role in critical thinking. It's one thing to say, I don't know what I don't know, but I'm actually humble about that. I'm actually like constantly positioning myself as a learner in real time. And I recognize the limits to my learning in terms of none of my learning was actually objective. There's no such thing as truly unbiased learning. Everyone has an angle. Everyone has an angle, right? So being able to approach the world with that level of healthy skepticism means that I'm more flexible in my thinking. I'm more adaptable in in, in being able to change my mind. Changing my mind about things is not a horrible thing. It makes sense. Some might actually call it science. (laughs) Wow. Thank you. And yeah, exactly. These different angles. And I think for me growing up, I remember being at, you know, dinner table with my stepdad and we have like discussions and debates and I loved it. And sometimes you take just a stance or the role of the other opinion just to discuss it out. And I think that's something I took for granted growing up, but I think a lot of people do not get to experience that growing up and having really this different approach of, yeah, having different opinions or just putting yourself in the shoes of somebody else, you know, seeing it from their perspective and taking on this, this argument. So you published a book and then in 2021, you also launched BEE Project, a nonprofit organization. Yeah, the B Project, the B Project. You call it B Project, sorry, yeah. The B Project, yeah. Published the book, Thinking Like a Lawyer. And Thinking Like a Lawyer, it's been really kind of wild because I've got educators from Australia to France. And I mean, to be an education bestseller, you typically sell 5,000 copies of a book. This book has sold over 20,000 copies in the midst of a pandemic. And it's just my first book. And what's wild about that is it reached number one on Amazon one time. You know what category? Special education. Special education. Because critical thinking is for everybody. And if you give access to critical thinking and practical tools, like it lights people on fire. I've had people who are not even parents nor educators who are reading thinking like a lawyer being like, I never really thought about critical thinking this way. And that's been really exciting. It's been even more exciting to be able to like build that into the work we're doing all over the country where we're doing trainings of educators and parents and poured a lot of that into my second book, Tangible Equity, which is now available for early release. But the B Project is a little bit different. It's a little bit different than what I've been doing because one of the big problems we have in the United States around every aspect of education is the racial injustice that plays into education. And the thing about this is I want people to sort of realize that I'm of the MLK sort of mantra. And when I say MLK, I'm not talking about Dr. King's phrases that he's always being quoted on, but there's a speech that he made where he talked about the problems with progress. And there's this idea that some people are the hopeless pessimists and there's some that are the kind of crazy, like cockeyed optimists, where it's like, okay, two things could be true at the same time. We've come a long way. 
and we still have a long way to go. Those two things can be true. It used to be illegal for Black folks to be able to go to school. The public education mandate that every state has is to make sure that everyone has access to a free and appropriate public education in school. That said, I can say we've come a long way and also say we still have a long way to go. If you look at like how kids do on like reading proficiencies and how they're doing in terms of the racial disparities and in the academic performance, like I can name all of that. But when it comes to gifted education in particular, gifted education has become a really challenging issue in the United States because we've got a lot of states and it's, it's so crazy to look at it. The states where we have the most number of black kids in public school have the fewest number of gifted programs, period. So forget about identifying gifted kids. There's no program to have them identified for. In states that have a lot of gifted education programming, we're seeing all these disparities about not seeing a lot of black kids identified. It's to the point where people are talking about, let's get rid of giftedness altogether or gifted programs altogether. Let's just presume every kid is gifted, whatever have you. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, I like to work with things within my scope of power, within my scope of control. What I know is that when I go to gifted conferences all throughout the United States, there are very few Black and Hispanic gifted educators. Very few. Now, it turns out that when I ask the question, why are you a gifted educator? What drew you to this? Typically, 80 to 90% of people who teach in gifted education were either gifted themselves, have kids who were gifted, or have someone very close to them who was gifted or whatever, right? So like, if you have inequities in a system, they tend to stack over time. So my idea is that if you can change the face of who gets to teach gifted, you might be able to change the face of who gets to be gifted. I can't tell you how often I speak to people who are part of programs, running programs, and they actually identify some number of Black and Hispanic children, and the Black and Hispanic parents say, no, thank you. No, thank you. Because it can feel really isolating. I, for one, I have a gifted daughter that before she's in her district right now, when I knew she was going to probably believe the assessment's gifted, we lived in a neighborhood where she would have been the only Black child in her class. Nope. Not doing that. Not doing that. I'm not going to have her go into this place where, and, and it wasn't just that she was going to be the only Black child in her class. She was in a district where there was known to be some racial hostilities around that. Because by the time she was in pre-K, in pre-kindergarten, at a Montessori pre-K nonetheless, and I actually wrote an article about this. My ex-wife and I wrote an article about finding like a green book for public schools for our kids because the green book is this infamous manual that Black folks used to have to use in the 60s and 70s and before that to like find safe place to travel in the United States. We had a lot of sundown towns, a lot of places where you couldn't stay in a motel or a hotel if you were Black roads that were dangerous to be at after dark. But we need this idea of a green book to say, like, where can I go to a school that I can thrive academically and thrive as a human? And she was already been told at that pre-K that, oh, you couldn't come to my party because we don't like brown people at my house. Nobody wants to play with you. That's why nobody likes brown people. Like, all this kind of mean, nasty stuff. And I don't know about you, but I'm fairly certain that three-year-olds and four-year-olds don't just learn racism just because. Clearly, there's be a model of something different. That said, the B Project is amazing. Chrissy Burton and the Burton Foundation here in Arizona, where I live now, sponsored us so that we're going to actually be rolling this out fairly soon, where we're paying educators of color who are already in the classrooms $2,000 a pop to earn their gifted credential. Earning a gifted credential is a teaching 
investment. Because right? when you can teach to the level that's going to really challenge gifted kids, even if you're not teaching in gifted programs, it's going to change the access that kids have to critical thinking. It's going to increase the number of kids that have pathways to advanced academic opportunities. And you know what's going to really happen here? It excites me. We've got kids right now who are square peg round hole kids. Square peg round hole kids. Because anyone could tell me this. Because we all went to some kind of school. Or we know all kinds of family members that are younger. We all know these people who were brilliant, but criminal. Brilliant, but bad as hell. Brilliant, but always in some kinds of deep trouble. And it never occurred to me to understand that genius we leave on a table until I went and I worked in my juvenile justice clinic when I was in law school. That juvenile justice clinic, I was like, this could have been the student council. This could have been the National Honor Society. These could have been the collection of salutatorians and valedictorians from all the schools in this district because these young men and women were brilliant. The challenge is they never got the chance to show that brilliance in the classroom space. So when I look at the B Project and what it could do to change who gets access to this kind of programming, who gets access to this kind of development as a teacher, I'm very excited about this next level of advocacy and our work. I'm excited. I will closely follow. I'm super, super excited that you're doing this. Thank you. And you have your second book coming out very, very shortly. So time's running out. So I'm, I'm, I really want to talk to you also about your new book and how is that different from your first book and where can people pre-order? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So both books are available on, on Amazon or wherever you buy books. You want to get bulk copies, might be better to go through uh, myself at thinklaw.us or through the publisher Routledge. And the thing about the second book, Tangible Equity. And Tangible Equity, the full title is really trying to get to a bigger point. When I look at tangible equity, the full title is A Guide for Leveraging Students' Identity, Culture, and Power to Unlock Excellence in and Beyond the Classroom. And here's how that book connects with the first one. When I look at thinking like a lawyer and critical thinking skills, the critical thinking gap, this idea that we don't teach critical thinking to all kids, that's a massive symptom of an inequitable education system but it's a symptom. If you want to get down to the root of it, though, we got to get into the root of the idea that we've come to normalize inequity. And part of it is we don't even really understand what we say when we say equity work. So when I talk about doing equity work, I'm talking about reducing the predictive power that demographics have on outcomes. And I don't care what country you live in. I don't care what kind of space we're in. We all know that predictive power in our communities. We know whether it's the other side of the tracks or up the hill, down the hill, or north of the freeway, south of the train station. We all see these different dividers where you can so commonly be like, oh, that's where the infant mortality rate is going to be the highest and the schools are going to be the poorest and the outcomes are going to be the lowest. Like we, we, we know this. So if we're doing equity work, we're disrupting that predictability. Well, in the midst of the racial flare-ups of what happening with the brutal murder of George Floyd, I had a lot of educators coming to me like, okay, what are we going to do? What can we actually do? And I remember what they really wanted, what they were coming to me asking is like, I want to have more courageous conversations about race. And I said, why? Why? Why do you want to talk about race? I don't know how courageous a conversation is going to be if it never leads to action. 
How about you don't talk about race anymore? How about we think about what it's going to actually take to disrupt that predictive pattern? And here it started thinking about a couple of different attitude shifts, a couple of things that it's like, wait a minute, as an individual educator, you can sometimes feel powerless. It's a massive system. You can feel powerless. I like to call it the paper straw problem. You ever drink out of a disgusting paper straw? It's gross. I hate paper straws. They come into a big thing of mush two minutes after you start your drink. But what's even worse than drinking a paper straw is feeling like if you're doing it to save the environment, but that factory over there is putting all those chemicals into the air and that manufacturing plant putting all these toxins into the water. Oh, but I got my paper straw. <laughs> but we can feel like that sometimes unless we recognize we actually do have a lot of power. So in this book, we actually get our readers to think about the power within the systems that they're actually more proximate to. There's this whole view of social change. We've been doing it wrong. The best people to solve the problems are mostly the ones that are closest to those problems. So we got to find the things that we're close to. And we got to start unraveling that through a mantra that recognizes that we can sit around and tell people about academic success and merit. And we can recognize that merit is not useless. But we can also say merit's not enough. We want academic success so our kids can play a game. Why are they playing the game? So they can slay the game. So they can create a different kind of opportunity. So they can make it an actual more level playing field and create things that are more just. I have got to admit, I am more optimistic than the facts should lead me to be. When you look around at things going on in that world, things would make you feel very pessimistic. What I cannot be pessimistic about is these kids, the adults, forget us. We're done. <laughs> okay, I'm over us. But these kids, these kids across the world are inherently special. I don't know where they came from. I don't think we had anything to do with it. Zero. But their creativity, their openness, their acceptedness, we can't blow it. We can't blow it. And tangible equity gives a lot of strategies that we can use to really tap in to this generation to be the one that actually gets us to our promise as a global society. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to read that book. Thank you so much for sharing. And where can people find you if they want to reach out, if they want to learn more about you, about all your projects, the books and the B project? So, um, if you're on Twitter, follow me at Colin E. Seal, Instagram at Colin Seal. You can follow our work at Think Law US on either platform. And check out our work at thinklaw.us. Buy our books wherever you uh, do that. And we are very excited about getting into more international work. So if you've got you know, work at international schools, private schools, and anything like that, would love, love, love to talk about how we can bring those models there. Our biggest thing I could say is that we don't want any of this to feel like one more thing. So ultimately, if you work within school systems, we work with you within the curriculum we already have to try to beef it up and, and, and make it connect better with the kids in front of you. So I appreciate you all for following our work. And please, for more information, check out thinklaw.us. And we even have a Facebook group that's becoming more and more popular called the Tangible Equity Community. And this community is a way that we can share lots of ideas for educators and ideas for really being able to push things. And if you're a parent, raisingcriticalthinkers.us would be a really good way to be able to dig into that as well. Thank you. I will put all of these links that you just mentioned in the show notes so people can just scroll and click on the links and get right to you. 
As a last question, is there anything else that you would like to share? Something you wish people knew? Something you wish you knew earlier? I guess the one thing that I wish I knew was that there's no master plan. Most people don't really know what they're doing. There's a sense sometimes that if you're in this big chop position or whatever, you've got all the answers. No one has all the answers. They're waiting for you. They're waiting for your kids. They're waiting for us. Like we need to be the ones. We need to be the ones. Stop thinking that the answer is going to come from some edict at, up high. Like the answer might be the thing that you're holding inside that program, that idea, that creative spunk and embrace the fact that our differences can be the very thing that can light our world on fire in a good way. We need your differences. Thank you. I have nothing to add to this. Thank you. That was beautiful. And thank you again for showing up, for being here. And I will stay in touch with you. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. The hour we scheduled went by way too fast. All the resources are linked in the show notes, and you can find more information about the episodes and about the podcast on unleashmonday.com. You can sign up for the very sporadic newsletter and to be the first to know any announcements. And if you are gifted or a twice exceptional woman or identify with the social experience of a woman, then I invite you to join the Unleash Monday community. You can find more information as well on the website. There's a link to the community. And if this episode gave you insights and inspiration, you can support me by subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast. You can rate it with stars. Hopefully you give me five stars and you can leave a written review. This means a lot to me. I really read all the reviews and it helps the algorithm to show the podcast to others who might need to hear about this topic. So of course, I invite you to be brave and also share this episode with a friend who you think might be gifted or might learn about giftedness or twice exceptionality in adulthood. So again, I would like to say thank you for being here and for being part of this amazing journey. Have a wonderful day and I see you in two weeks. Bye. <laughs>